I think it symbolizes the dilemma, right? On the one hand, we have this climate crisis, which are all about data. We are talking about melting uh, glaciers. We are talking about uh, rises. We are talking about the number of populations that are going to be displaced. But on the other hand, how to assuage it? Hello everyone, welcome to Lively Lead by Chat Radio, a weekly literature podcast airing every Sunday. I'm Hacha, and today's guest is going to be Farid Hamka. So Farid, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi everyone, I'm Farid. I'm from Indonesia, so it's an honor to be actually invited to be talking about literature for audience in Vietnam. I like Vietnam and I hope I can return there soon. Who am I? Uh, in this episode, I'm going to be like who I am, who is actually a tree hugger. I will talk about trees, but what I do uh, right now is that I focus on a literature uh, slash literacy project in Jakarta. So we have an initiative that opens public book racks in a few Jakartan public parks so that people can donate or grab a book and then just read at these parks. It's to popularize reading, but also to popularize going to parks as an activity in a rapidly developing city such as Jakarta. So talking a little bit about the initiative, the Jakarta Book Hive, when did you start it? Um, how is it going right now? Uh, is it successful? How are people responding to it? Sure. I mean, I started it as uh, more or less like a passion project. I was missing England a little bit too much. And back then, People have a developed literary culture. Uh, they have bookstores everywhere. Access to book was super easy. So um, during the pandemic, I started falling in love with my own city, um, Jakarta. Not really proud to say that because I've been here all my life and I've only fallen for it last year. But then I decided to open this. Um, I have profound love for reading. And also right now I have a budding love for Jakarta. So why not merge them together and dedicate something that I would be passionate about? And so I launched it this year in April. And then I thought it was only going to be one. It's going to be a small thing. But then the reactions were super positive in Jakarta. And a lot of people were trying to ask if they can sponsor some book hives according to our development uh, plans, etc. From April to now, we have around nine book hives around Indonesia. Some of them are managed by private cafes or businesses, but most of them are in Jakarta in the public parks because, again, it's to make people go to parks. Right, so you say you open it during the pandemic, so does it affect the operation of it? Some of them, like the first one, isn't actually inside the park, it's outside the park. And since our model is just you take a book from this book rack, Uh, bring it to your to the comfort of your home or to a cafe and then you can return it or not i know we readers sometimes want some books that we read and change our lives but the kind of like thing that i want to inspire with this initiative is just the gift economy right you take some books one day and then some days you would give uh, your books that you s see others can benefit from and so it's very pandemic friendly Uh, in some ways because you don't really have to spend too much time near these book racks. You can just visit this book rack in the morning or in the afternoon and then take the books, go elsewhere, uh, you feel safe. 
All right, so you talked a little bit about you being a tree hugger, and you're going to talk about tree as a topic for today's episode. So tell me a little bit about how you come to love trees so much. Well, I mean, when I was young, of course, I was in the garden. I remember the first tree I planted was a papaya tree that I, you know, I just sowed the seeds on the ground, and then it kind of like turned into a tree. And I thought it was super magical. But then I didn't have the time to focus on gardening, so I kind of like was on a hiatus for around 15 years, etc. But during this pandemic, I remember thinking I'm trapped in this city, which I didn't love at that time. So I thought, what were the aspects that I miss about living abroad that I can do here? Um, and one of them was because previously I lived in London. And there were a lot of public parks and a lot of walking involved in my daily life, right? So I began to uh, walk again to stroll around Jakarta. Previously, Jakarta in my head was just as a lot of people think it was: its traffic, its pollution, its you know, uh, big malls like humongous malls side by side, which was true. But then, when you walk around it, you begin to realize, right, that this whole city used to be a forest and so by walking rather than taking cars i began to notice the small things you know the wildflowers that are growing just across my house i begin to see all the trees that are planted around these malls that they have different personalities not personalities characteristics i mean uh, and i began to you know have that childlike wonder again that oh wow there are magical beings living just near me, living on the paths I can choose to pass every day, which I didn't prior to the pandemic. So after that, I began to try and learn what these trees are. So for example, the tree with the uh, really red flowers, and I started learning its functions, its name, its Latin name, its symbolism. And I began to realize that, you know, there are these magical plants around us that can inspire us, that can give us consolation that we somehow take for granted. So at that time, after that, I became quite obsessed with plants. Well, yeah, that's a very interesting story. Um, so what piece of literature are you going to bring to the table today? So one of my favorite novels of all time. I think it's one of the tomes that we need in this current age. We live in an age of, you know, filled with eco-anxiety, environmental problems. We don't know. We have these uncertainties about the future. So the reason I choose this particular uh, piece of literature is because I feel it's one of the novels that take that problem. You know, we are living in a climate crisis. But rather than give the data to scare you or all these things that cannot really connect to you because yeah sure three percent of ice is melting etc usually people who are not really into science wouldn't really think of it as something extremely bad but this book what it successfully did i think personally is that it humanizes somehow the lives of plants and trees especially and it makes it uh meaningful 
So the excerpt that I chose is from a chapter where this scientist named Nile is having some kind of like crisis. Uh, he doesn't know what to do, how to proceed with his startup in Silicon Valley, etc. But then he got stuck in the arboretum in Stanford, if I'm not mistaken. And then he just sees for the first time how trees become meaningful, how rather than just being these trunks and leaves, they become something else. Um, okay, but you haven't told us the name of the novel yet? <laughs> I have not? Okay, sorry. The name of this novel is The Overstory. It talks about, I think, nine or 11 different individuals uh, whose lives are intertwined with each other, and the subject that intertwines them is tree. Is trees, is different trees. I think there's five or six uh, trees that are super important in this novel. Uh, totally recommendable. It's got brilliant erudite writing. Okay, so do you mind reading the extra for us? Sure. He wheels up to the tree and laughs. The trunk looks like a giant upside-down turkey baster. The branches skew and spike out at foolish angles. He reaches out to touch the bark. It's perfect. Absurd. Up to something. A tiny placard reads, Brachichiton rupestris, Queensland bottle tree. The name excuses nothing and explains even less. It's an alien invader, as surely as Nile. He can't decide which is more incredible, the tree or the fact that he's never noticed it. Shapes flicker on the edge of his vision. Something is happening behind his back. He has the overwhelming feeling of being watched. A silent chorus in his head sings, Turn and look! Turn around and see! He spins the chair in place. Nothing is right. The whole cloister courtyard has changed. One hyper jump and he has landed in an intergalactic arboretum. On all sides, furious green speculations wave at him. Creatures built for otherworldly climates. Crazies of every habitat and profile. Things from epoch so old, they make dinosaurs look like upstarts. All these signaling, sentient beings knock him back in his seat. He has never done drugs, but this must be what it's like. Plumes of cream and yellow, a purple waterfall that evaporates before it touches the ground. Trees like freak experiments beckon from out of eight large planters, each one a miniature starship arc on its way to some other system. Nile sweeps the chair around the courtyard. His paraplegic body tenses as the council shimmers in their standing circle, watching him make the circuit. He rolls past another Susian monster as alien as the first. He reads the tag, a silk floss tree, from Brazilian forests even now shrinking by 100,000 acres a day. Sharp-tipped warty cones cover the trunk, Spines that evolved to fend off grazing beasts that went extinct tens of millions of years ago. He rose from planter to planter, touching the beings, smelling them, listening to their rustles. They have come from hot islands and desiccated outback. From remote valleys in Central Asia, breached only recently. Dove tree, jacaranda, desert spoon, camphor tree, flame tree, empress tree, Kurajong, Red Mulberry, unearthly life, waiting to waylay him in this courtyard while he was searching for them on distant planets. He touches their bark and feels just beneath their skins, the teeming assemblies of cells, 
like whole planetary civilizations, pulse and hum. Wow, that's a really beautiful reading. I think my favorite is the final part when he describes the thing behind the bar, the teeming of assemblies of cell, like whole planetary civilization. That's a very beautiful description. I agree. I think I think it turns something that would come from science fiction and write it about these trees around um, this particular character, right? And so it gives that otherworldly feel that people right now are obsessed. I mean, people are obsessed with space exploration, but do they really know their backyards? That's a question, right? Yeah, talking about space exploration, I think recently a lot of billionaires are trying to move into space and to show that they can, just to show that they can. And it's interesting, I had this conversation with my parents just recently, um, how they admire such billionaires, you know, trying to discover things that have not been discovered. And I was very skeptical. I was like, if they spend that money on trying to make this planet more livable, I will admire them more. And my parents were not very happy with that argument. Uh, yeah, I would imagine. Um, because sometimes I feel like space exploration to some people embodies and symbolizes this yearning for more that this progress this technological progress that makes everything just better but again there are so many things that don't have to cost that much money but give the same curiosity bewilderment that you can get going to your backyard and you know understanding these trees or even kind of like asking internally what's in your heart what are you feeling etc uh, so I guess I'm also skeptical with all these billionaires and their space uh, programs. Yeah, but it also feels very similar in a way because back then, um, during the Industrial Revolution, I think, people are trying to conquer nature the same way that people are trying to conquer space right now. In this Anthropocene, people are trying to exert their power over everything. But now, after the climate crisis, and especially in the extract that you've just read, people are having to relearn what we, the ancestors, have learned so many years ago that we cannot just exert power on everything around. We have to learn to live with them peacefully. It's really funny because one of the main thesis of the overstory is this uh, four words, control kills, connection heals. And I totally agree with you that, um, you know, all this narrative about dominating the world is getting a little bit, you know, um, the, the negative effects, the repercussions are starting to be seen. And now we need to reconnect with these plants i think um in the in some cultures in some indigenous cultures they don't treat plants and animals as other beings you know as other beings that can be dominated or domesticated they treat them as people so i think some sort of native american culture or language they would then call it like just a tree but like they would call it a people tree something like that uh, it's from braiding sweet grass i think which is also a recommendable read yeah, and I feel that's what the eco-criticism movement is trying to do, trying to humanize um, and personalize the trees and natural beings so that we as humans feel more connected to them and thus be more responsible in protecting them, right? Have you ever been consoled by a tree 
let's say? I would say yes. I would say yes. Actually, recently I encouraged my parents and my brother to bring more tree to our balcony, and we have like a very green balcony right now. And not only me, but everyone in the family agree that whenever they feel depressed or whenever they feel upset, they would go to the balcony and they feel more cheerful just being in there. So I, so I would say absolutely, trees have this consoling ability. True. Even in some language, things such as I think in Japanese is called shinrin ryoku, which is forest bathing. A lot of therapists recommend that. But also, I think in German, I kind of forgot the exact term. I think it's Walden Einsamkeit, but it's basically saying it's describing the feeling of good solitude that comes from being in the forest. Which I think it's it can be an untranslatable word. Oh, uh, and we need to kind of like experience it, and maybe the word. Will go into the mainstream in a few years, hopefully. Okay, so um, you sent me previously before this episode. You sent me four pieces, and you choose to read the first one in the overstory. So I have my favorite one from the stacks that you sent me. So do you mind if I read the poem? Sure, please do. Okay, so it's "High Dangerous" by Catherine Pierce. High dangerous. Is what my sons call the flowers, purple, white, electric blue, pom-poming bushes all along the beach town streets. I can't correct them into hydrangeas, or I won't. Bees ricochet in and out of the clustered petals, and my sons panic and dash. And I tell them about good insects, pollination, but the truth is, I want their fear box full of bees. This morning, the radio said tender age shelters. This morning, the glaciers are retreating. How long now until the space print backpack becomes district policy clear? We're almost to the beach, and high dangerous. My sons yell again, their joy in having spotted something beautiful, and call it what it is. That's such a beautiful reading. <laughs> oh, thank you. So tell me, why do you choose this to put in the stack? I think it symbolizes the dilemma, right? On the one hand, we have this climate crisis, which are all about data. We are talking about melting、uh, glaciers. We are talking about、uh, rises. We are talking about the number of populations that are going to be displaced. But on the other hand, how to assuage it? I mean, we already. Talk about these statistics. We already have this panic. We already created eco anxieties in our children. But then, what can really get to them is, for example, you know, seeing something beautiful and calling it what it is. As I feel as if like this high dangerous. I think it's just so funny because you know, if we don't know how to pronounce hydrangeas, we would be likely to say high dangerous also, right? It's just filled with childlike wonder. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like about this poem is the wordplay, right? And it's really interesting to call it high dangerous too. It kind of has this alarming quality to it. You know, it's it's high dangerous. It needs protection. Although I'm not sure if it really needs protection if it's really in the red book. Yeah, I mean, it can go to that, but also I feel as if like the poet itself has some kind of realization. It's not only the children that realize, oh wow, this is just high dangerous, like something super exciting in their life, 
But I think in some parts, the author talks about tender age shelters. I want their fear box full of bees. She's anxious for the future. And she's wondering if she should actually scare and give all the children all these science that are coming around, you know, flowers and pollination. But she doesn't. She just lets them run around the nature and discovering by themselves. So I think that's super beautiful. Yeah, but don't you think there's a little bit of... um. I would say contradiction here because previously we talked about how we should humanize trees, how we should personalize them, personify them actually, um, in order for people to feel more connected to them. But in here, the message is that just call it what it is, just appreciate it as what it is. So is there a contradiction in here? To me, I think I can see why you're uh, raising a point about this contradiction of personalization and stuff. But the two different excerpts have this quality of connecting, right? Like for the poem, sure, it's beautiful. Just shout it. You know, you don't even need to make it scientifically correct. Just shout it. And then the first one is just like notice it and try to study about it. And both things are an antidote to whatever we are having right now. You know, nowadays people are forgetting what these trees are called. I feel like uh, even though you raise this point about contradiction, I don't think the contradiction is really vital because both of them shows this excitement, shows this trees and flowers as something worthy of attention. So do you find this excitement personal, like relatable? Because you talked about how you got excited about trees um, and that led to your appreciation of Jakarta. There is this tree, uh, no, there's this flower called Ruelia simplex. They're called Mexican petunias. They bloom, they blossom around 8 in the morning. And then by the afternoon, they will all have withered, wrinkled, and died. But then the next day, they blossom again at the same time. I don't know, just looking at that makes me feel consoled that, you know, you're sure these cycles happen. Even I kind of like take it as a personal consolation that in life things must end but then it doesn't mean that the next day it won't bloom again um so yeah i feel as if like wildflowers on the streets are as exciting sometimes i just want to shout at them sometimes i just want to dance when i see them that some plants some flowers like lantana camara which is um wheat in the streets they look like fireworks. The, the flowers look like fireworks. So I think a lot of the apathy that we have right now when it comes to the climate or to the environment can be to a certain extent remedied if we can have this high dangerous experience, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just being curious. Have you ever wanted to be a tree? And if you can, which tree would you become? Wow, this is exciting. Have you, Chang? I have, I have. I actually have. I think life would be much simpler if I can just be an avocado tree. An avocado tree? Why an avocado tree? Because I've been planting four of them in my garden. I have a very interesting anecdote. So I have four seeds and three of them. I peel the outer peel and then I put them in water. I follow all the uh, instructions on the internet. And it took them a while. I think it took them, it took two of them around a month to sprout. And the other, I thought it was dead. But then two months later, it just, you know, the roots just came out. 
and the remaining one I thought it was broken so I just tossed them in the kumquat tree and then I think three months later it just sprout and the final one the one that I just throw in the kumquat tree it was the strongest one I really love that kind of energy so that's when I thought well I, I want it to be an avocado tree yeah, you can just, you know, you can live in any different circumstances and still grow, right? Mm -hmm. For me, in general, yeah, probably. Trees are just amazing. They provide food, they provide the air that we breathe, they give us shade that we really need. But speaking of which tree, it would either be a banyan tree or a flamboyant tree. A flamboyant tree is like Delonyx regia and a banyan is a Ficus benjaminus. Both of them are, you know, really huge trees giving lots of shade. They grow very strong and they're for a flamboyant tree. The flowers are just beautiful. It looks like flames literally when it's uh, in full bloom. I think in Vietnam uh, it's called Phung Phi and it's super duper popular around the graduation time. But Banyan because every part of the banyan is so meaningful you know the roots um give you shade and beauty aesthetic beauty and then the berries attract birds right now the banyan in my uh, backyard is fruiting and a lot of birds like hundreds of birds are there i think they are swiftlets and they just fly around the tree every single day and i think if i were this banyan i would never be lonely because there's always these birds singing their symphonies around me there are people who are looking at me with wonder and then you know all these leaves um and all the air that you breathe from your roots so maybe yeah when you think about it a tree is so much more useful than a human being honestly but i don't know if you should edit that out <laughs> no 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 i'm, I'm absolutely keeping it in <laughs> But yeah, I, I feel like I just have this insight when you talk about why you want to become the banyan tree or the flamboyant tree. It feels like a psychological test. Like, tell me which tree you want to become and, and I'm going to tell you, you know, what your life is and what your personality is. Uh, me, I would be like having this surprise energy. Voila, you thought I were dead, but no, I'm alive. And you would be like, I love having company, something like that. <laughs> Oh wow, my loneliness screams. No, but the reason I asked that question is that when talking about tree, I keep thinking about the vegetarian by Han Kang. Have you read her? Yeah, that's such a haunting book. I remember reading that and wow, this is... Well, that was kind of like, that book unhinged me, but then it stays in my brain for a lot of time. Absolutely. I had a, such a hard time reading that. I think it took me like a month just reading the first part of the vegetarian because it's too difficult and it's too traumatizing. But um, I want to mention the third part when the main character, Yonghee, she thought she was a tree. And her sister, because it's told from the viewpoint of the sister, tries so hard to force her into eating and try so hard to bring her back into the human world. And I keep thinking about that, keep thinking about eco-criticism and what is wrong with being a tree? That's such an interesting book of eco-criticism and culture also, I imagine, you know, because the first two parts are all about this girl starts, you know, having this traumatizing dream and she just decides to be different. And then people just can't understand her. I mean, if you want to take the metaphor into 
a lot of the things about being vegetarianism or doing any kind of like climate action, people around you are saying, are you crazy? And I think that's one thing that is super disheartening for people who are trying to do things differently. Yeah, normally it is read that way. It is read in the way that if you are different from the rest of the society, how are you going to be accepted or how are you going to be seen uh, from the eyes of, you know, the commoners? When we talked about this topic, when we talked about trees, I keep thinking about, you know, the literal meaning of Yonghee imagining she was a tree and trying to live as a tree and people trying so hard to stop her from assimilating herself to nature um, and people forcing her to live in the human way. And I feel like it's a criticism of the human-centric viewpoint. It's hard to discard it. True, even nowadays when we want to save the forest, we keep talking about their values for our well-being, their values for our food. We don't see them just as, you know, how we see people, that they just deserve a lot of these lives that they are given and that they are continuing, right? I think that there would be, there should be a balance between talking about trees as a value to us and talking about trees as they are. Because if you keep talking about tree as they are, yes, it is great. It is unhuman-centric view, but it's hard to get that message across compared to when you say that trees or forests or oceans are this and that um, value to us, and it touches the people a lot more easily. True. I feel as if like our selfishness will be a little bit more defensive if we under just understand that losing these trees, losing these plants, losing these pollinators means the loss of humanity also. We can't survive. We literally can't create food out of thin air like the trees do. So yeah, I think this has been a very interesting topic. So any final remarks? Um, save the trees, save ourselves. <laughs> I think that's my <laughs> remark. Yes, a very um, easy to digest kind of message, right? <laughs> totally. I mean, or maybe um, something different would be just like, go to your backyard. You'll find wonders that can really save your life. Yeah, absolutely. If you're depressed in this, you know, social distancing and pandemic world. All right. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us today. And we absolutely look forward to having you again on Lively Lit. Thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. To our listeners, thank you for listening and please look forward to our episode next week. See you.